Today's sermon comes from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. There was a Gallup poll that came out in 2013 that was actually quite alarming a couple years ago that talked about the state of the American workplace. And the findings were alarming because it, it pointed to a large amount of disengagement in the workplace. Listen to uh, uh, just a couple of these findings when they did this poll. Of approximately 100 million people in America who hold full-time jobs, 30% are engaged and inspired at work. 50% are disengaged, or what Gallup described as, quote, kind of present but not inspired by their work or their managers. 20% are actively disengaged, and only 22% of U.S. employees are engaged and thriving. Now, if we project those numbers onto this congregation, that says that only one out of four of you are engaged and thriving at work. And I would say, whether it's one out of four or somewhere in that range, I, I would say that's probably true. I've had enough conversations with you. I've been in the workplace to know that that's probably true. And so the, it demands the question, which Paul is addressing here, is how do you flourish at work? How do you thrive at something you do for many, many hours a week? Now, before we jump into work, let me just speak into the immediate context of this passage. Slaves and masters, There's many that read this and they say, does this mean that the Bible endorses slavery? Let me address this quickly, okay? Um, No, it does not. Slavery in the first century Roman Empire was radically different than slavery in the American South, which we know very well. Uh, Just a couple of differences. Number one, in in the first century Roman Empire, one, slavery was not based on race. Number two, it was not for a lifetime. So people were often released out of slavery early in their life, and they could even buy themselves out of slavery. Third, even though there was a distinction between owners and slaves, persons in slavery did not constitute a different economic or social class. The, The slaves in the first century Roman Empire were architects, bricklayers, planners, accountants, It was very different than the American South. It wasn't until slavery took on the uh, lifetime, kidnapping, harsh scenario that it did in the American South that Christians rose up to abolish slavery. So Paul's not endorsing slavery here. He's addressing what is. In fact, there's estimates that there might have been up to 60 million people who were slaves in the Roman Empire, right? So Paul's just addressing what is. The fact that he addresses slaves was totally countercultural that he actually talked to them as responsible citizens was absolutely countercultural. 
So with that backdrop, backdrop, let me shift now from slaves and masters appropriately to employees, employers, or more generally to work today and answer the question, how do you flourish at work? Number one, how do you flourish at work? By understanding the divine calling of work. There's a phrase that appears three times in verses five to seven that's absolutely critical to establishing the foundation of work. Uh, Verse five, as you would Christ. Verse six, as servants of Christ. Verse seven, as to the Lord. Now, when you hear someone say, uh, she is serving the Lord, or he is serving the Lord, what does that typically mean? Typically means that she's a missionary, or he's working for a church, or he or she is working for some parachurch ministry. What it typically does not mean, or that phrase does not refer to, is the person who is cleaning houses, planning finances, running a business, working as a doctor. And the reason that it doesn't typically represent that is because we don't have a biblical understanding of work. And that is what Paul is trying to drill down here. I want you to consider, uh, consider the Lord's Prayer. Specifically in the Lord's Prayer, the petition, give us this day our daily bread. You ever thought about what are we asking for when we pray that? Give us this day our daily bread. Psalm, 40, Psalm 145, 15 says this. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Now, how does God give you your food? Uh, I have yet, maybe it's happened to you, but I have yet to have vegetables rain out of the sky and land on my front yard. What does God do? He sends rain to the crops so they can grow. And then what, what, what do farmers do? Farmers harvest the crops. Truck driver comes in, they load the, the produce onto a truck. It goes to a food preparation plant, it gets clean, it gets packaged, another truck driver takes it to food distribution center, it gets loaded on a different truck, goes to the grocery store, somebody puts it on the shelf for you to get. Then somebody checks you out as a cashier. Then you take it home. When you get home, what do you do? You put it in your refrigerator. That was designed by engineers that was put together in a a factory somewhere and delivered to your house, probably on a truck by somebody. The point is this, all work is God's work. Work is a divine calling. Or consider uh, Psalm 147, verses 13 to 14. It says, he strengthens the bars of your gates. He makes peace in your borders. That says that God protects you. Well, how does God protect you? Well, through good laws made by good legislators and by good laws upheld by good lawyers and by police, and by military. That's how he protects you. See, all work is God's work. Work is a divine calling. Imagine if, just think about this, imagine if your garbage at your house did not get picked up. The garbage men did not come by to pick your garbage up for a long, long time. What would happen? Well, those containers that in my house that are in the garage would start to overflow, wouldn't they? With trash bags. 
out of the kitchen trash can and every, it would overflow and it would overflow. And eventually, and I don't mean to be crude here, but maggots would begin to colonize and multiply. And, 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 and if nothing was done, if your garbage was never taken out, you would have a public health disaster at your house. And if you had a public health disaster and did nothing about it, you would get sick. And if you didn't go to the doctor, you might actually die. Garbage men serve the Lord. It's a divine calling. Doctors serve the Lord. It's a divine calling. The point is, is that all work is God's work. And the way he provides is through those who do his work. Now, what are the implications of this on your work attitude? I think there's two very important ones. Number one is this, that servants, if you understand that all work is God's work, then you, you never can have the look down your nose attitude. You can never have the I'm better than that attitude. That when you understand work is divine calling, all work is God's work, then you treat servants, those that serve you, with dignity and honor. The, uh, the CEO of JetBlue and the founder, David Nealman, he, he displays it. He calls it servant leadership. He gets on his planes, his JetBlue planes, all the time and regularly travels to various parts of the country to run this, this airline company. And when he gets on his planes, he, he joins the crew in serving. He joins the flight attendants and hands out snacks and drinks and, and blankets. And then he sits in the cockpit and he talks to the pilots. And then when the plane lands and everybody clears off, he joins the team that cleans out the plane. And he was asked, he said, why do you, they asked him, why do you do this? You're the CEO of this company. This is what he said. You can't ask employees to do something you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. That when you understand that all work is God's work, then you value all work. It's divine calling. And you treat servants with dignity and with honor. That, that's the first implication. The second is this. When you understand that all work is God's work, appreciation and gratitude replaces unrest and disengagement. Appreciation and gratitude start to flow. If all work is God's work, then you flourish in the work he has given you. Now, as I talk about this, this does not mean that you don't go look for a job that may better fit your skills or your gifting. That, that's, that's valid. But that being said, we spend far too much time trying to find God's calling rather than pursuing the calling that he's given us. In other words, blooming where God has planted you, flourishing where he has placed you in the calling that he has given you. A team of researchers from University of Michigan and Yale uh, did this study or launched out to do this study on how people with unglamorous jobs do their often devalued work. And they were trying to figure out who to poll. Like, wh wh who would, what would be the sector that they would run this research study on? And they finally landed on uh, hospital janitors. That this is who they were going to do this research around. And what they found absolutely shocked them. 
at least in this one hospital, major hospital in the Midwest, they went and as they started to interview and talk to the housekeepers and the janitorial staff at this hospital, what they found was this subset of housekeepers who didn't see themselves as part of the janitorial staff. They saw themselves as part of the professional staff, the healing staff. And what that meant is they started to get to know the patients in the rooms. And they started to offer a support, albeit small, but not unimportant. They would bring a, a, blo- a box of Kleenex into the room, or they would, they would bring a, a glass of water into the room. They'd offer encouragement. They even talked to one housekeeper who rearranged the pictures on the wall in the room of a comatose patient, hoping that the change in scenery might produce a positive effect. Now, you talk about blooming where God plants you, flourishing in the calling that he has given you because all work is God's work. And that there's a, that's a picture of it. So how do you flourish at work? First, by understanding work as divine calling. All work is God's work. Second, by understanding the motivation for work. So Paul starts off really quick and simple in verse five. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Boom, done. There's the command. And then he spends the rest of verse five through verse seven describing the heart behind it the attitude behind it, the heart motivations that should be beneath this obedience in the workplace or this submission in the workplace. And he names three attitudes, three specific attitudes or motivations of the heart. Verse five, he says, with fear and trembling. That means with with reverence and with awe or with respect Right? That you, you do your work with respect of those that are in authority over you. Second, he, he says in verse five, with a sincere heart. That means with pure uh, motives, not ulterior motives. He, he defines the opposite of sincerity in verse six when he says, with eye, sir, not with eye service or people pleasing. But what he's getting at there is you, you, know, you work hard when your boss is looking at you. When he's not looking at you, you don't work. There's a, there's a lack of sincerity in how you do your work, right, when you're people-pleasing. And then the third attitude he names in verse seven, he says, with a good will. Now, the word goodwill here literally means eagerness. It means with eagerness, with joy that you would work. Consider the, the, the absolutely underlying motivation that is behind the opposite of those three attitudes, right? The opposite of respect would be what? Disrespect. And what's the underlying motivation of disrespect? It's pride, isn't it? Or consider uh, sincerity, right? What's the opposite of sincerity? Well, insincerity, or as he describes here, people-pleasing. It's that you just, you're like a chameleon, right? When your boss is looking at you, you act a certain way. Right? What's, what, is, what is the motivation beneath a, a lack of sincerity? It's self-absorption. It's just self. And then the last one, eagerness and joy. What's the opposite of working with eagerness and joy? It's sloth, laziness, grumpiness. What's the motivation behind that? It's self. 
You see, self or selfish or self-serving desires are what produce disrespect, lack of sincerity, uh, laziness, or sloth. The same thing Paul points out with masters. So he addresses the slaves, but then he says masters. So those of you that are in authority over people, verse nine, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So he says to masters, stop your threatening. Why do bosses threaten? Well, to get something done. And why with threats? To get it done quickly. Why quickly? Uh, Typically, maybe not always, but typically there's some self-serving interest behind that. To get the project in under budget, right? Which makes the boss look better, potentially a promotion. That self is behind the threatening. In fact, now let me just pause here. As a boss, if you are a boss of some sort, you're called to motivate. You're called to challenge. That's a good thing. But when self is on the throne, healthy motivation gets replaced with threats and fear. When self is on the throne, healthy motivation that is good and that God would call for gets replaced with threats and with with fear. You say, so what's the answer? Well, it's it's peppered throughout this passage. Notice in verse five, when Paul says, slaves, obey your, he doesn't just say masters, does he? He says, earthly masters. And he's making this, this distinction. You have an earthly master, but you also have a real master. And then when he says to masters, listen, you're under the same authority as them. You have the same master. It's Jesus Christ. You see, working for Jesus, your real master, is what will produce the attitudes that Paul calls for here. When you're working for Christ, you will be respectful. You will be sincere. You will be eager. Why? Because Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Your bosses change, don't they? Your work environment changes. Your work changes. Companies change. Values change. All that changes. And if, if you're not working ultimately for Jesus, when those things change, so will your quality of work, your quantity of work, your attitude at work. All that's going to shift. Jesus will never shift. And so working for Jesus is what produces those attitudes. And what's the result of working for Christ? This is critical. You're no longer controlled by your environment. You're no longer controlled by your environment. You're no longer controlled by your boss. You're ultimately controlled by Jesus. And I'll just be honest here. Some of your bosses don't deserve your hard work. They don't. Some of you may be thinking that now. Keith, do you know what my boss does? No, I don't. I can imagine. I was in the workplace. I had rotten bosses. Your boss may not deserve your hard work, but your real master, Jesus Christ, deserves your hard work. And you work for him. And when you're working for him, you're no longer controlled by your environment. Uh, Howard Hendricks the late Howard Hendricks. He was a pastor, author. He tells this story. He got on a plane to fly somewhere and it was delayed, but they were out on the the tarmac just sitting there in this delay. And the delay went longer and longer and longer. And you can imagine 
The passengers got more and more irritable and irritable and irritable sitting on this tarmac. And, uh, and Howard Hendricks noticed this uh, flight attendant. And he noticed that the gracious attitude that she had as she was responding to these just irritated, frustrated people. And after the plane finally took off, he, he said to her, he said, I, I noticed how you treated those people. That your, your poise and your self-control and your kindness. He said, I would love to write a letter of commendation for you to your airline company. And she said, I don't work for the airline company. I work for Jesus Christ. And this morning, before I left my house, my husband and I prayed that I would be a good representative for Christ today. Not controlled by her environment, working for Jesus, respectful, sincere, eager. You flourish at work by understanding work as divine calling, by understanding the motivation for work, ultimately that you're working for your real master, Jesus. And then third, and finally, by understanding the reward for work. Verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Now, why does Paul say this? Because he knew that there were slaves that did not have good masters, that never showed appreciation for their hard work. Some of you have bosses like that. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus' eye is always on you that he sees what you're doing, that he sees the hours you're putting in. He sees the hard work you're putting in and he says, will you look to me? I will reward you. Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the king leaves to go on a journey for a long period of time, and he puts his estate in the hands of some servants that he gives talents to and gives his property, his possessions to them. What does he say to the ones that invest the talents well when he gets back? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. That Jesus rewards you. Now, why is this so critical to flourishing at work? Well, it's because you and I were created for affirmation. We need affirmation. Now, the sinful heart can take a healthy need for affirmation and turn it into an idolatrous need for affirmation, absolutely. But it doesn't take away the fact that you are a created being in need of affirmation. And that Jesus gives you that affirmation for your work. That if you look to him, he's the one that ultimately rewards you when nobody else notices. When nobody else notices your hard work. I, I worked, when I got out of grad school, I worked for a consulting engineering company for a number of years, Camp Dresser and McKee in Charlotte, and I remember, uh, specifically remember this job I was on. I had to get this design done, 
And I had my, my CAD operator, Jason, who would punch the design into CAD so we could print out drawings. And this project was getting to the end. The deadline was coming and I ended up spending, Jason and I ended up spending an all-nighter in the office. Me revising it, sending it to him, he'd print out the new drawings. I'd revise some more back and forth. We got it finished and we submitted it. Now, my company had a policy that on certain jobs that were finished, they would give out, uh, if it was extraordinary, bonuses, right? Not all jobs got it, but if they were finished well, there were two types they would give out, a $400 bonus and a $1,000 bonus. And so about a week or two after this project finished and we got it in under the deadline, I got the, you know, the email, the congratulations, you've received a $400 bonus. And there was some name of this type of bonus. I'm going, oh, that's great. Well, Jason got one too as the cat operator. You know, not too long after the email came out, he came into my office and he said, Keith, you got the shaft. You deserve that $1,000 bonus. Do you know how hard you worked? You see, Jason had worked with other engineers on other projects, and he had seen who got $400 and $1,000 and what, what required the $1,000 and deserved this and that, and he was convinced I got the short end of the deal. And he was, he was completely bent out of shape. And I'm thinking, well, I'll, I'll use the $400. It's okay with me. But he was totally bent out of shape. Listen, if you don't have your eyes set on reward from Jesus, you will perpetually, to varying degrees, be bent out of shape. That you will thrive and flourish in work when your eyes are set on Jesus and reward from him. Now, the, the basis of the reward is explained at the end of verse nine, closes out the passage, where he says, there is no partiality with him. No partiality, what's that mean? Just like in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, uh, the king did not reward the servants based on how many talents they were given, did he? Because they all got different talents. He rewarded them based on what they did with the talents they received. What does that mean? The same criteria will be used to reward the CEO of a company and the janitor that comes in to clean the bathroom of the office of the CEO. They maybe have get, gotten different talents, but that's not, God doesn't reward based on your position. He rewards based on what you do with what he's given you. You don't need the bonus at the end of the project. You don't need your boss's affirmation, though it would be nice. Why? Because you receive the affirmation of the Lord. You receive the reward of the Lord. I've shared this story and I'll close with it. I, I have shared it before in the past, a church that I was a part of years ago. It was a large church, lots of people on staff, big campus, so big that they had a janitorial staff. And one of the janitors on this campus, his name was Steve. And uh, Steve had Down syndrome, but he was fairly functioning. And his job was every day to go around the campus and take out everyone's trash. And that's what Steve was capable of doing. And he did it every day. Now, there was a school attached to this church. And one day, this teacher was walking out of school it had been a particularly rough day. Students were not overly um, obedient. 
She was questioning, why am I doing this? Why did I put in the hours of work on the lessons when they just seemed to be for naught? Kids were unappreciative. She said, she was thinking, even the administration, they they don't understand how much time, how much hard work I've put into this, and this is what I get a day like this. Maybe I should just quit. Maybe I'm done. She's walking out to her car, and she crosses Steve's path. And Steve, with a big smile on his face, says, it was a joy to take out your trash today. And this teacher, in one 10-word sentence, heard a sermon on Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, that all work is God's work. Work is a divine calling. And that you're to work for Jesus and that Jesus stands ready to reward you and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we recognize and we know by experience that work is hard. There are some seated here that are very disengaged at work, very unhappy. And while, Father, there may be a job that better fits their gifting and their calling, we pray boldly, Holy Spirit, that you would plant them right where they're at for this time that you have them in this job, that they would see their job as divine calling. Father, that their eyes would be on your son, Jesus, that they would be working for Christ, that it would produce a great deal of respect in the workplace and sincerity and eagerness and joy. Father, and as you bring your children to that place with that understanding and that attitude, may the job and the work that they do be a testimony and a witness to who you are. Because to work with that kind of perspective and that kind of joy is absolutely countercultural. We hear the statistics at the beginning of this sermon. For someone to work with joy in the workplace and to do it with purpose and with sincerity and not people-pleasing, and to be consistent, it speaks to who you are. So, Father, would you proclaim your gospel through all the various industries and businesses that are represented here, Whether, whether it's those working for a large company, whether it's those that are running a small company, whether it's whether it's homemakers whether it's those that are in school full-time to prepare for vocational careers, would you give us this perspective on work? And even tomorrow morning, when we wake up and go to work, would we have this perspective of going to serve you, Jesus, in whatever you have called us to do? And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.